Hello everyone, welcome to Magazine 3 Art Pod. And uh, Bella, hello. Hello. This is actually a much earlier recording time. Usually we do it by the, <laughs> by the end of the day. And uh, I think this is a good idea. You seem all very upbeat. Yeah, perky uh, even. <laughs> and, and Ron, how are you? Very good. Have you been on uh, traveling? Uh, as usual, yeah. yeah. Okay. To Delhi and other the places. Yeah. yeah. And uh, we are three people, three professors, three questions. And that rule we break absolutely with, <laughs> with every program. <laughs> and I'm, I'm beside myself uh, of excitement because uh, I have um, a wonderful person that came to Stockholm yesterday, David Adje. And he is a, a utterly distinguished uh, British, UK living uh, architects uh, that came to England at the mature age of 14. You have been uh, had uh, this wonderful uh, success with some of the most uh, thrilling uh, buildings for the last uh, 15, 20 years. And I'm absolutely delighted that you could be with us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Great. I have, though, to say that that uh, uh, David is uh, partly here because of uh, Sveriges Architekter and the chapter of, of uh, for Stockholm. And he had uh, a full house, a sold out lecture uh, last night where you went through some aspects of, of your of your practice. You are one of the few architects that I know that are so open with your relationship to the visual arts. Hmm. It seems that this is a this is a course of, of, of not only personal relationships because we, we the people that have studied you, we know that you have a lot of uh, friends within the art world. How do you take this kind of, of visual art, this kind of creativity and how do you incorporate it into your your, your thinking? Um, I think uh, contemporary art for me has been a, um, a, a sort of rule book, as it were. Um, and, uh, you know, I was studying in the 80s um, uh, and early 90s, and it was still a sort of a time in architecture where uh, certain formal concerns were being contested and, and, and ideas about theory were being discussed. And it was really uh, a, a moment of, I think, a lot of confusion, maybe might still be a confusion now but to me <laughs> I have some clarity in what I'm trying to kind of work through but I became very attracted to art practice because it seemed to be setting up trajectories that seemed more um, analogous to the world that we lived in and offered ways of thinking and ways of operating that seemed very relevant uh, and seemed to be able to touch people so I I started to kind of take more, pay more attention to my friends. You know, I was at the Royal College at the time. I would go to the arts lectures rather than the architecture lectures. You know, I would listen to John Stetzica and all these guys that at the time were lecturing. Um, and, and, and it was uh, fantastic for me. Um, and that's kind of where also I, you know, made a lot of my early friendships with artists. And, and, and I am open about that because in a way I've, I've been committed to this idea that architecture needs to expand its universe beyond its, uh, or, to, or to confess some of, I think, the strongest trajectories that have influenced it, um, which are never really said, which I think our art practice influences. Um, so I, I, it's more, it's a kind of confession, like an open <laughs> confession, like, okay, mm. 
we we love art. <laughs> yeah, no. David, when you when you talked about being a student, late eighties, nineties, uh, there have been times I think in history, constructivism, where artists and architects blended together pretty well. But that period, late 80s to 90s, I think one of the most influential exhibitions in New York at the time was the Philip Johnson's Deconstruction. Mm. And, and I mean influential on artists. You know, people, that's where they spent their time uh, looking. And so I think that, that that generation that emerged from that um, is a much more powerful, has much longer reach than architects that are siloed in one way or another. Mm. But this would not be as solid as it is in your in your in your practice if you don't uh, somehow combine it with your your research and your interest in social phenomena. And some of the connections are totally unique because you come from an from an African heritage mm-hmm. and your family and and the first uh, years in your life you you lived in Africa and you have revisited it. And would you would you tell us? I mean, because you revisited it in in an extraordinary way, uh, not not spending uh, a couple of days or a couple of weeks. You have actually uh, kind of covered the whole continent. Yeah. No. <laughs> I know it's a sort of when I hear that said, I kind of think, God, did I do that? Why did I do that? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's I. You know, Africa is such a big word and such a generic word to most people actually um but but in my family and and we traveled a lot i i kind of realized that we'd only been to maybe six or seven countries and we call that oh we traveled all over africa and i was like mm. oh, that's like 52 when we were starting it's now 54 um and i just wanted to just jettison all the relational um sort of ways in which one would traditionally go to a place that is is maybe somehow partly familiar to you and and so i basically spent between 1999 and 2011 um traveling every spare moment i could to the continent on my own with no help and no research you you have to tell because you have a special practice when you come to a new place <laughs> which you have to tell our listeners because it's uh, this is something we can copy from you okay. right it petrified my parents who yeah, thought yeah. that i was going to be lost no but you have to but, tell this is wonderful it's, it's absolutely easy and it's just to really pretend that you have just landed in a place where you have no information. And so how would you navigate? And and try not to get into a comfort zone. In fact, enjoy the discomfort. So the first thing is to always arrive. Don't take a guidebook. Don't research the place. Arrive. Don't go to uh, you know information centers or anything. But try and use your senses to find a driver or a taxi person, of which there are always somebody at these places. Talk to some people and then create a relationship and then usually within two minutes of quickly talking i would say you know i have a proposition (laughs) and the proposition is can you show me your city we'll work out an hourly rate and for as long as it will take if it's a week a month or a day i will pay so irrelevant of what the bill will be so we don't have to talk about the end bill we'll just talk about a rate and then the incentive is to show me your city 
So that, and in a way, I put it that way because I wanted it to just not be a tourist kind of short edit, mm-hmm. but something that was I'm using a capitalist trick to incentivize the ca- the taxi driver to absolutely think of every bloody last place he could take me. <laughs> <laughs> so you know, and in the end, what usually would happen is that I would end up at the family house because you know yeah. they would do everything, and they go, you know, you've got to come home and meet my auntie and my mother and my children. It was brilliant. It really yeah. allowed oh. me to see the city in a very un. Um, sort of scripted way and it you know and you crisscross it and actually it's a natural edit because at the end when you start to repeat places because they you know there's nowhere else to go you realize you've seen the city you know that's fantastic i love it <laughs> is this method like present in the, in the way you work also do you think that it's a uh, similar well i think that i i actually analyze places like that i yeah. like to just drive around yeah. a lot and yeah. and and do and just speed speed and i think it's become a technique yeah um Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> I wanted to link this because you are you have a commission in Washington DC which mm-hmm. is really a breathtaking uh, commission by by its size. Uh, would you like to tell us a little bit? I mean it's it it has to do with with the uh, African American heritage of course. Yes. It's it's a very important commission in that in in several um for several reasons. Um Just from a planning urban point of view, it is the last building to be completed on the Washington Mall. So the mall, which was planned, you know, just over 200 years ago, has taken 200 years to mm. complete in terms of the cultural core. The city's been built, you know, overall, but this the cultural assets, which were to be the sort of double side of the mall, have taken this much time to build. And this will be the last museum on the mall grounds. The Washington Memorial grounds or where the monuments are, there are more spaces and those mm. will still go on. But the mall grounds, this is the last cultural site. So it's the last Smithsonian on the mall. I mean, there can be other Smithsonians elsewhere. Mm. And it is, ironically, it is a project that has been contested for 200 years <laughs> also mm-hmm. um, because it's the museum that's dedicated to understanding the contribution of the African-American experience to the experience of America. So it's really oh. the understanding of America through the lens of the African-American experience that actually you can't decouple them. They are, you know, the capital wealth the emancipation, um, uh, you know, uh, modern civil rights, which also leads to modern human rights, all kind of emanate from mm. this tragic and, uh, you know, uh, powerful story. Mm. And the building is a fantastic opportunity to also think about the reflection of the meaning of the mall, which is this um, classical re- rework part three, you know, it's mm. number three. It's you know it's not the European Empire. It's now the American Empire. So it's and it's the Greek model of the Europe. You know, but it actually kind of spans both the entire classical language from the pharaonic Egyptian references of Washington's monument to the Renaissance dome of Congress. You know, so it really it's it's really the classical world being completely played out. So how does a contemporary architect work in that? It's been fascinating. Mm-hmm. And and you are and this is a project that will go on. You told me for like seven eight years or something. Yes, it's a it's an eight year project. It will be the longest thing I've ever done. Uh-huh. <laughs> I'm just about getting halfway through it. Um, and yeah, it's it's pretty. This is one of those moments where architecture really you it's a slow art. <laughs> <laughs> you also have told me that that you need kind of a balance between these projects. Uh, which is exquisite. I mean, to make a, a building like that uh, at the mall in in DC, but it goes on for many many years, and and then you are 
then you you need to balance that with things that are faster and and yes. smaller in scale and, <laughs> and everything like that. Huh? Yeah, I have become completely gripped by um, anything, but usually very small things. Just completed a range of pieces of furniture. I've worked on a chair for three years, which like I couldn't <laughs> believe. But I've been fascinated by every part of tooling, manufacturing, testing, all these things. But I have this chair that's coming out uh, or several chairs and mm. I'm really thrilled about that <laughs> which, you, which you are uh, <laughs> producing for, for Noll for or Noll is yes. producing Noll uh, is producing it so it's this incredible American company which is probably the biggest furniture company in the world And uh, a question which we have talked about in in the past and we talked about it in regard to to uh, someone kind of continuing a process that someone else started mm. And I read in in the Guardian about the you know the the the, the Gaudi Cathedral. Um, have you read about that? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which has been, I mean, they've been building on it for for hundred years, and and it was there's, there's a project, and that's a project. <laughs> But I was uh, because we were talking about in relationship to performance art and so on. Can someone else do your 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 performance? And and when I read about the, the Gaudi Cathedral and 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 the fact that uh, there is now kind of a group of uh, of architects which has has been in the past and so on, they say this is not Gaudi anymore. This is something else. And 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 someone is defending his idea of, of it. Is it possible? I mean, uh, <laughs> from, from from your professional point of view, could someone finish your building in DC? <laughs> There's a question. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, you know, I think that the principles are very, very clear. The, the, I think the notion of authorship, which is probably, you know, and, and then you can expand it to performance mm-hmm. being discussed here. And, and architecture is a kind of collaborative art of sort, but there is an authorship drive in it. Mm-hmm. Now, we're getting very good at laying down the principles of authorship, but it's interesting that when when somebody else takes it, Despite their belief in the DNA components, they imp- they impose their authoring mm. tendencies. So there's a kind of moment where there's a fusion or a kind of hybrid that occurs. So you get sort of meta languages, kind of you know, you get these new things happening all around it. Um, um, so I mean, I I recently just completed a building in Hamburg where we just only finished design concept drawings, and we handed it to a local architect in the city was doing it. And even though we drew a lot, the local architect just tweaked a few things and never told us. <laughs> and so it got delivered. So actually, it is a sort of it is an AJ building, but it's an AJ-ish building. <laughs> but and, and you said, AJ, you, 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 David, you also said I'm talking about this massive building that oh, you built. Be- yeah. And, yeah, which is a, a kind of a science center or it's university? It's a management center. It's management. business school and management. It's their Harvard Business School. Right. Yeah, or the which, INSEAD, yeah. Which is outside uh, Moscow. Of Moscow, yeah. yeah. Some of the interior yeah. <laughs> is not David's hand. Yeah. Huh? yeah, That must be so frustrating. I mean, you yeah. don't need to go so far as... Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright when no. he designed the clothing yeah. and, and, and who <laughs> the slippers and, and who and who should lay next to you in your bed and so on. more importantly <laughs> more importantly but but uh, but 
is that the it's extremely frustrating yeah and it, and it only happens i don't know why at the scale of large buildings um there is a tendency in the in the market and it's a very market thing to say oh no 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 now it's it's just such a big building we should have several other people kind of do it yeah. and it's sort mm-hmm. of like well, nobody's ever done that in the history of anything we've done, even when they're urban plans, you know, uh, yeah. you know, one architect. And, and we enjoy the singularity of it. Mm. Um, but there's this kind of thing like, oh, no, it seems it seems some, somehow at that moment too authoring. Yeah. This is it. Which is a really funny thing. Well, I've just yeah. done the biggest building, yeah. so <laughs> and now all I want to do is do the you know the cafe and the entrance to kind of feel the same way. Yeah. So I, I think at this point yeah. I've gone past whether it's an authoring problem yeah. or an ego problem. Yeah. I'm already in. Um, yeah, but it's like to... smoothing over, like oh, it, it's not just about one person's exactly. vision; it's about the uh, some multitude of voices, like we talked about. Yeah. Which is what, this, yeah. and it's somehow very persuasive. You know, it's a kind of argument that's out there, and I'm always like, I don't get this. Yeah. It happens at airports, which is so depressing mm-hmm. I was you know you go to airports and you see like 50 different architects kind of and yeah. your mind goes into fusion and you just want to switch off mm. actually because it's just too much stuff because um, actually the authoring everybody's like taking their moment oh uh, yep mm-hmm. I've got the uh, little corner the toilet yeah. that will make it a masterpiece <laughs> <laughs> There is this famous building outside uh, Tel Aviv at the Weizmann Institute, which is this building by built for, for Israel's first president, uh, Chaim Weizmann, and it's a Mendelssohn uh, building. Mm, beautiful. And, uh, and of course, Mendelssohn never, this is just an anecdote, he, he, when it was completed and it had the first swimming pool in Israel and so on, he never uh, visited the building. Because behind Mr. Weizmann, there was a Mrs. Weizmann, and she wanted to decorate it in her kind of nice German, uh, good burgerlich tradition. And and he just said, you know, if you put in that kind of crap furniture, I'm, I'm, I will never, I will never be there. And he never visited it, the 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 building. I find it really interesting with the authorship thing, and also that I see a lot of. Uh, discussions in uh, design and in architecture that uh, want to think that it would be more democratic to not have a strong one voice and uh, I think to have um, this blurred vision is not democratic either so I I completely think that it's it's interesting and And it's not in relation to like the fascist artist that is like, or the fascist, fascist um, architect that wants to decide how you stand or the empty room is the best, but just to have a clear vision to be inspired by. Mm-hmm. I think it's the future. Yep. There's a building, or maybe it's not a building. It's a massive complex that they're building out where I live, and they have eight different architects working on it at the same time. It's just going to be a hodgepodge. Yeah, yeah. 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 It, it sounds like a bad working environment. <laughs> it sounds like a, a bad recipe for, or a good recipe for disaster, perhaps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah this is it. I was thinking about an article that was in the New York Times a couple of days ago, written by Michael Kimmelman, that mm-hmm. spends a lot of time in, in, in Berlin too. And I want to kind of get back to the northern part of, of Africa. And, and he's writing about uh, what's happening in, in Egypt and in, in, in particular in, in, in Cairo. You know that after what happened on Tahrir Square and 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 the kind of removal of Mubarak and 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 that regime one also start to realize how the kind of urban planning has been for for decades and uh, just to kind of 
summarize it. I mean, it, 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 maybe it's always a money, money game, but there it was even more, which means that the wealthy built their protected or gated communities and the rest was just up for, for, for grabs. And, and now you have uh, kind of interest groups in the city that are realizing that they need to have a, a road or a connection and they are just mm-hmm. more or less building it by themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and at the same time, some developers are, of course, coming in and, and knocking down buildings that are very, very, very old uh, just to build up these kind of uh, terrible uh, low-income housing no, it's a, Cairo is super interesting. It's one of those cities, you know, it's it's one of Africa's mega cities, as in it's 20 million people, probably, in real terms, plus. So it's a real mega, mega city. Um, and it has extraordinary parts. You know, it has an extraordinary history. It's at the amazing medieval quarter, the sort of later quarters, you know, the 20s, the Art Deco period, and, you know, the sort of housing of the 60s even is, is, is kind of present. And it is on this fantastic geography, so you really... It it doesn't completely deny the Nile, but you know the Nile is such a kind of incredible river with its width and this kind of mass of water, which is just this horizontal plate that sort of sits next to it. So so location, history, extraordinary, and yes, it has this fundamental problem. Um, there's hardly any public space. I mean, the Aga Khan just kind of patronized opening an old cemetery which was refurbished and then converted and that became this new park nearest to the medieval quarter and it's become the lung of the city and it's a mm. tiny little slither mm. and they've realized that actually they've sort of the the public realm has been so taken away from citizens and so um it become a, you know a kind of a, a terra firm. it's a war zone actually um where actually by letting private enterprises march onto um the development of the city you realize that you actually give up when when these moments occur, mm-hmm. the 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 way in which citizens in the city can operate as free, you know, mm, yeah. sort of individuals mm. within the confines, because you realize that a lot of the city becomes privatized, even when it's apparently public. Mm. So gated yeah. moments, yeah, which so are true. visually public, mm. are actually private private scope. So mm. so suddenly you you think your city looks beautiful because you you know somebody's upkeeping the flowers and looking after stuff, but actually you've actually given it up. <laughs> it doesn't belong to you anymore, and you can't actually even walk in these areas. And a lot of Arab cities are like this. Because Michael writes about it in the article. He says if someone approaches you and you live a a large family in in a very small dwelling and they say, here here is some money and and it will be better for you. I mean, you you will have it better. He says who who would say no? Mm. And and who would say no in regard to other cultural values that we are talking about, uh, an old building or or a, or an, a block of, of houses or yeah. so. Yeah. No, um, and this is the dilemma, uh, you know, um, that that bag of money can 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 shift these things. And then actually, because also in, in the in the absence, absence of, you know, I mean, basically there are these weak institutions. They're very loud megaphone institutions, but they don't do much on the ground. So it's a kind of just a noise thing. You know, these buildings which are extraordinary to the history and the, and the patina of the city are easily lost. And mm-hmm. people don't even notice that they're lost because the city's also so big mm-hmm. that the infrastructure and the institutions can't even spot when these mm-hmm. things are happening. So already, you know, the developers take advantage of that, go in, take down the building. And before you know it, you know, the, the discussion is only when it's been taken down. That oh mm-hmm. my God, you just took down something which was mm-hmm. kind of fundamentally important. Uh, two parallel examples, actually. 
that I think of in comparison quite a bit. Uh, one is in Berlin right after 89, and the city is rushing to erase the East German legacy by tearing everything down. And uh, I was at Architectural, uh, Architectural Association then, and there was a group of us trying to convince the city to save some things. Mm. The only thing we were able to save was People's Palace, which it's maybe not the thing to save. In comparison, just this last year in Ahmedabad, the developers using political influence tore down a huge slum. Now, that sounds good. No, it's not. But exactly, and they put they put all of these people into these high rise apartment buildings. But slum economies work on a horizontal scale, Constantly. and they totally destroyed the economic life that existed there. So it supports this incredible. It's a it's a delicate, fragile sort of support structure. Yeah, this yeah, horizontal exactly. structure. Right. Yeah, and so there, and I think that was just short sighted, uh, overreaching, ambitious developers. Because the slum happened to be on the Ashram River uh, with a gorgeous view uh, yeah. <laughs> of of the city, so it it, um, it I think it happens everywhere, and yeah. uh, and it's generally generated by people wanting to make financial gain yeah. in, in short term. It's it's fascinating. I mean, just going to slums as, as well as a kind of discussion because um, I think there's, there has to be a kind of discourse about this phenomena, which is that that the collective kind of nature of a slum. And the way in which a kind of imbricated relationship that occurs where people just are sort of supporting each other and layering over each other. At its worst, yes, has bad sanitation, blah, 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 blah. But at its best, creates an extraordinary um, social network mm. which connects huge communities together in a, in, a, in a really fascinating way and creates a, a new kind of architecture which is more dense than anything we can actually ever do. So, I mean, we talk about, okay, we want to, like, put them in high-rise buildings. But actually, they have more density. The better people living in that <laughs> yeah. small footprint is probably the most efficient footprint possible. Mm. And actually, what we need to do is learn from those models and actually try to kind of say, huh, you know, okay, how do we actually make these so that these are models that we can actually build from? Mm. I actually am super interested in the idea that, I'd like to see a city the scale of a slum, <laughs> yeah, yeah. but not yeah. the not the not the sewage problem. You know, let, let's just remove yeah, all the issues and let's make a community that's even closer together. This whole a lot of our talk today has has circled around interdisciplinary knowledge. Uh, Bella and Ron, you both being educators, I mean professors at, at the Konstwerk here in, in Stockholm. How do we create students? Mm-hmm that understand that that mm. uh, brilliance has to be a, a mesh yeah. of, of all of this. Any I think thought? it was I think it's like this um, both things to uh, be able to develop uh, authorship and also to have a currency that you can bring to a collaboration because you have to have a currency that uh, that makes the exchange interesting and I think that the engage part is probably a key word to engage mm. mm-hmm. and for to engage you need to come bring something to the table. Wrong. Well, I'd answer it three ways. One, <clears throat> uh, Larry Summers, the former Harvard president, in a really very good uh, op-ed piece in The Times said, titled, What You Really Need to Know. And he s- makes a flat statement that uh, university will be the last time you're judged or you will ever be judged on individual effort because businesses, cultural organizations understand that interdisciplinarity is, is much more effective. On the other hand, the research coming back in on how effective it is is pretty discouraging because we fail about 80, a little bit more than 80% of the time we engage in interdisciplinary projects. 
However, the good news, and I think architecture is an example of this, opera is an example of this, cultural disciplines are much uh, more suited to the, or more more comfortable, I would say, I should say, than than others. It seems to me, um, because we tend not to just share ideas, but we actually synchronize those ideas mm-hmm. into this sort of third kind of practice. And I think that's the key right now. Um, and and people in cultural disciplines, it seems to me, take to that much easier than physicians <laughs> or bankers or you know. beautiful. I wanted to come back to the, to your the relationship with with the arts. I mean, you have worked on 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 installations, and I was so happy to realize that you made the uh, Avedon exhibition, uh, the architecture for for uh, which was maybe half a year ago at the mm-hmm. Gagosian at Gallery, the Gallery in, yes, in, in Chelsea, New, in, Chelsea mm-hmm. in New York, mm-hmm. and you worked with uh, Olafur Eliasson mm-hmm. at the Venice Biennale and mm-hmm. so on. Do you, get, do you know, there's this joke that all the architects wants to be uh, artists, artists and all the artists, <laughs> the artists wants want to be, be architects <laughs> and, and we somewhere in the middle, I don't know what we want to do, but you know what I mean. And, and, and because this is for me one of the differences between, between the arts and, and, for example, architecture or design or something, that there is no consumer in mind when you create art. I mean, we, we can have a long discussion about the art market and the art world. But if you, if you go down to the creative process, it's about being somewhere and, and forming the ideas you have into something. And architecture or design, you are working on your chair for three years. Nevertheless, you want some of us to sit on it, <laughs> right? And, and I assure you, and I assure Noel wants that. So is this a, is this a, is this a, is it a, a source of of energy and inspiration, or is it also sometimes difficult? You've, I mean, you've hit w- uh, why I do it. I do it because it is the one space without any generic or functional or criteria. It is almost for me a free space. Mm-hmm. So I thrive on that energy. And and so I don't, you know, the issues that make these things complicated for people when they see them as projects, I find laughable because, I, you know, and I'm always like, in the beginning when I did that, I didn't even want my name sort of mentioned. I was like, I don't care. Mm-hmm. You, you can mm-hmm. take it, you know. Mm-hmm. For me, the nourishment is in the exploration because it's so rare in my my day job to have those opportunities to just say, I'm going to conceptualize a building without any regard for anything else except for an idea, you know. So delicious for me. Um, You know, and I started doing it, you know, first project ever was with Ellen Gallagher, Mm -hmm. um, you know, working on Jungle Gym with her. And nobody knew, but I was like happy. And then Chris Ophelia, mm-hmm. then Olafur. I've worked with Richard Prince. I've worked with Julie Maruti recently at the White Cube to do the Mogama paintings, which I thought were so spectacular. Um, and, you know, I don't make it a source of tension. And when if it is, then I don't do it. Mm-hmm. But because I, I have no, I kind of think of it more in that kind of Viennese spirit of like the complete work, you know, the Hoffman mm-hmm. idea of right. like, the total work Al, is Alkunstwerk. Alkunstwerk. Yeah. The total work is more interesting than this, the authoring trajectories. Yeah. Um, and actually, if the work is good, you should know from looking at it what's what. Mm. <laughs> I mean, you should say, "Huh, that's amazing, and that's amazing. That must be this, and that must be this." Mm. You know, I, we have. I have toyed with artists where I, you know, I think we've talked about. 
wow, finally, I can do the building. Like I've gone into a room with the, <laughs> and, and the artist said, I want to do a building. And you can now organize the other stuff. And I'd be like, what? <laughs> but I think they just joke. This is like yeah. playful role-playing jokes. Yeah. But, um, you know, I, but, yeah, but it's wonderful when it's like that because there's no, the ideas come from everywhere, you know? So it's suddenly you realize that actually an artist has a powerful sense of architecture, but has never consciously articulated it because they've never sort of thought it was their realm. Mm. So it's just in saying, hmm, you know, actually this is something go, oh, really? That's what the issue is? Or suddenly I might have a very strong curatorial sort of belief about the work that the artist would think, oh, that's kind of not what I, you know. Mm. And I said, no, this has got to be here because look. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what, for example, when mm. you work with, when Chris was at the, mm-hmm. at the British Pavilion mm-hmm. in Venice Biennale, mm-hmm. which I, 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 that was absolutely one of my highlights to see that installation. Oh, and, and I realized that there must have been, Uh, someone else behind the artist at that time because it had to do with the lighting it had to do with creating this kind of atmosphere yeah. and everything like Chris's that Chris's Afro paradise mm. <laughs> I know. Yeah. dear friends thank you very much I, I know this was more than three questions and we were four people but uh, uh, Bella and Ron thank you and thank David you. wonderful to see you here It's in Stockholm here. and uh, thanks a lot for, for giving us uh, your time thank you 